Morning. Hey, how many of you uh, ever pictured Jesus getting really mad? You know, like throwing stuff all over the place mad. I'm going to guess that most people don't picture Jesus Christ that way. And yet today, as we're going through the books of the Bible, or a book of the Bible, the book of Luke, we're going to see Jesus experience some righteous, godly anger And he's even going to throw some stuff. Uh, We are, as a church, going through the book of Luke. Luke is one of four books in the Bible where you can learn about the life, the teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, We're just going right through the book. I would love for you to follow along. So grab a Bible. There's a Bible in front of you. You might have to reach a little bit of the chair in front of you. We're going to be on page 718. If you don't want to grab a Bible or you brought your own, uh, you can look at your own, or you can use our Renovation Church app, just have Bible and weekly verses. Uh, either way, we want 100% of people looking at the Word of God here. If you would allow me, I'd like to make a little switch around on what we're going to study today. We were at, the next story was the triumphal entry, uh, the story of Jesus uh, riding in on the donkey into Jerusalem. They're laying down the palm branches. We are only two weeks away from actual Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is always the Sunday before Easter. So I thought, oh, we should do this on Palm Sunday. So we're going to do that. And today we're going to kind of jump ahead a little bit to the end of Luke chapter 19. So it's actually going to be after the triumphal entry. In fact, this story takes place the next day. So this takes place on Monday of Holy Week. So we're Luke chapter 19. And I want you to look all the way to the end of the 19. So right, chapter 19, right before you get to the big 20 there, you'll find verse 45. And that's where we're going to start. Okay, here's what it says. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests... The teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Now, uh, this is a story that uh, both uh, Matthew and Mark record in their gospels as well in the Bible. And Matthew adds another detail for us. I want to I show you what he says. This is Matthew twenty-one 12. I'll just throw it up on the screen. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling. So, you know, it's kind of the same there. Then we see this, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And so Jesus is so mad about what's happening in the temple courts that he drives out all that are selling there and buying. And then on top of that, he is so mad that Jesus Christ is literally walking through the temple courts, flipping over tables. He's so angry about what's happening. And he says, my house, the temple, will be a house of prayer. But you've made it a den of robbers. Now, if you, if all you've ever read in your life are children's Bibles, or maybe you grew up at a church that didn't really teach through the Bible, or all you know about Jesus is what you've seen on TV or heard in the news, this story is probably a bit surprising to you, and maybe even a bit shocking. But if you truly studied who Jesus is, uh, for those of you who have been hanging around here for a few years and you've been going with us through the book of Luke, the story isn't all that surprising. Jesus at times is incredibly intense. And Jesus hates sin, especially in religious people. Now, Jesus is quite calm and loving and understanding when he comes across sinners who don't know God. 
So much grace. But when it comes to religious people who claim to know God and claim that they are holy, but yet their lives are full of hypocritical sin, uh, Jesus is more of the the table-flipping sort. Listen, we've got to get this image out of our heads. Jesus is not Mr. Rogers. And I think that's what a lot of the American public would like him to be. But just think about this. The Romans, as evil as they were, would never crucify Mr. Rogers on the cross. You don't murder Mr. Rogers, right? And I think that that makes you think about, okay, well, who was Jesus that made them actually murder him? There's an intensity to Jesus. But let's figure out why is he so mad? Because I don't think it's necessarily obvious if you just read these verses without looking at the broader context and even some of the historical context. Okay, so we know that Jesus has arrived at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the temple is a a meeting place. It's it's this place where God's presence is just extra special. And it's a place where God's people offered, at that time, animal sacrifices. Because in the Old Testament, one of the things they would do to experience the forgiveness of their sins, and they were saved through faith, but experience of their uh, forgiveness was they would bring an animal to the temple to be sacrificed. And the animal would atone for, means like pay for their sins. It would die in their place. Now that happened at the temple. The temple was a holy place. It was a place of prayer, a place of reverence. But now in Jesus's day, it's become this noisy, crazy, super loud place where all this money changing is going on as well. Now, People had to buy animals there to sacrifice, especially, okay, it's Passover, so many people are coming from way out of town, and if you lived, you know, 20 miles away, you wouldn't walk your animal with you the whole way. You would journey to Jerusalem, and then you would just buy an animal when you got there. But there's been some new changes that have occurred in Jesus' day. For one, they had moved all of the animals and the money changers into the temple courts. We know from history that before Jesus' day, they used to be kind of down in the Kidron Valley. They were away from the temple, but now they're in the temple courts. It actually gets worse because historians tell us that as soon as they moved them into the temple courts, they started jacking up the prices. And now, to buy your animal in the temple courts was 20 times more than it used to be. It's kind of like, you ever been to Disney World? Like, you go to Disney World and you buy a Mickey Mouse shirt. If you buy a Mickey Mouse shirt inside the Magic Kingdom, well, it's going to cost you like 40 bucks, right? But if you would just leave Disney World and you'd go 5 or 10 miles away from the Magic Kingdom, what you'll find in Orlando is there is a knockoff Disney store on every corner. And you can buy the exact same Mickey Mouse shirt for $4 instead of $40. Well, that's essentially what's happening here. In the temple, in God's holy place, they're jacking up the prices because they can. It's bad. And on top of this, here's another thing that's happening. The priest wouldn't allow people to purchase uh, their animals with their regular currency, right? Because we, we read in the passage, there are money changers. They're exchanging money. Well, why are they doing that? Well, it's because most of the people that were coming into town were using uh, Greek coins or Roman coins. And we know from archaeology and history that these coins had images of their pagan gods on them. Well, the priest didn't want people purchasing animals for sacrifice with pagan gods on the coins, which is maybe even somewhat understandable. So they had to exchange the money for just local temple Jewish currency. The problem was, though, they were charging these absolutely outrageous fees 
for the money exchange. And thus they were essentially robbing people. And Jesus is not having it. Because these people are hindering his people from encountering God. Now, open up your Bible for a second. I want, I want to show you something. Uh, look at uh, verse 46 of our passage, Luke 19. Do you see that there's a, a foot? Remember last week we talked about footnotes? When you see these footnotes, you, you want to trace them. You want to go, okay, what is this about? So there's actually two in verse 46, right, where he says, my house will be a house of prayer. So if you look down at the footer at the bottom of the page, you'll see that Jesus is actually referencing a passage from the Old Testament. Now, when you're studying your Bible... And that's what you want to do. You don't want to just read through like, oh, what does it have to say about me? When you read the Bible, you're saying, what am I learning about God? What does this have to, how do I apply this to my life? Well, you're learning about God too. So if you were to trace that passage back, you'll see that Jesus is actually quoting a passage from Isaiah chapter 56 in the Old Testament. And in that passage, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he says that his house, his temple will be a house of prayer. Now, if you read the whole passage in Isaiah, you'll see that God actually says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And if you read the story of Jesus cleansing the temple in the book of Mark, Jesus actually said that whole quote. Luke has just shortened it for his purposes. So it's kind of interesting here because all of this hullabaloo, if that's the right word, is taking place in the outer courts of the temple. Uh, the outer courts had another name. They were the court, it was called the court of the Gentiles. And Gentile just means non-Jew. It was supposed to be a prayer place for all nations. Now, I want to show you a picture. So this is a rendering that somebody made of the temple. It's not real. The temple doesn't exist anymore, but somebody made this incredible rendering. Uh, and what you see here, this was the main part of the temple. So back in here is the, the Holy of Holies. The curtain was here, the holy place. If that just all sounds like, what are you even talking about? Research this. Uh, you go to a great Christian website like gotquestions.org and start researching what's in the temple. So that's where the main part of the temple was, this tall place. Out here is where they did the animal sacrifices. Then all of this stuff around here is where uh, this is the outer courts. This is the court of the Gentiles. And so if you're picturing this story in your mind and Jesus is walking around flipping tables and now there's animals everywhere, it's all taking place out in this court of the Gentiles. And it's in this place where people had traveled from so far away to meet with the one true God, people from all nations. It's in that place where this messy sin is taking place. And Jesus is not happy about it, right? He's flipping tables. If you want to make Jesus mad, get in the way of other people trying to encounter God. Actually, please please do not do that. Uh, The last thing that any church, that any Christ follower should want to do is to hinder others from encountering God. In fact, what I want to do today is I want to show you two ways from this passage that we today can still unfortunately end up hindering others from encountering God. Now, the first one, you, uh, I think you might find a, a little bit historically or intellectually interesting, and I'm pretty sure the second one is going to make you uncomfortable. Okay, let's start with the first one. The first one is this, two ways we hinder others from encountering God. Number one, people can't see God through our noise. What do I mean by that? So, okay, you think about those outer courts, the Gentile courts that I just showed you. Uh, They were supposed to be this place where outsiders could come. They could encounter God. It was supposed to be a, a place of reverence and peace and prayer. And now, through their changes and their greed, 
the, it was just chock full of animal stalls, right? And cattle lowing and uh, money exchangers yelling out exchange rate. It's like they made the temple into the New York Stock Exchange that's also run over by animals. That's what they did with the temple. I mean, there's no way that anyone is going to encounter God in this environment. And I think this begs a really fascinating application question for modern day. And the question is this, in what ways does the American church create so much noise that outsiders cannot encounter God? I wonder sometimes, as I look at many of our American churches, if unbelievers cannot find Jesus in our churches simply because they cannot see him through the fog of entertainment that's crept into our churches. They see the light shows, they see the trendy videos, our celebrity pastors, and all our funny stories, but they're never actually confronted with the Spirit's power or the gospel. It's just the good news that Jesus can save them. In many other American churches, the noise is not entertainment, it's just our sheer busyness. I know a lot of good Bible-believing churches that especially pre-COVID and unfortunately probably post-COVID are noisy as all get out with their calendars. And every week, their churches are just full of children's programs and kids' theater and sports camps and music programs and community programs and social programs and Christian scrapbooking and Christian knitting and on and on. And none of those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves. But the problem is our American churches are so busy with all of their internal programs that they're not even stopping to think that 80% of their neighbors right now are bound to spend eternity in hell separated from God. And we are busy. Busy. And listen, Jesus is so grieved about this. We're hindering other people from encountering God because of all the noise of our busyness and entertainment. It's just like the noisy temple years ago. If the church in America is actually going to fulfill the great commission to make disciples again, we're going to need to come back to the basics again. Much like the church in America was doing um, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, you see many of these great movements were started in that time. If we're going to see great spiritual change... We need to reground ourselves in basic things like Bible teaching, evangelism, discipleship, community, prayer. The world does not need another show, my friends. Americans are already entertaining themselves to death five to six hours a day. People need to come to church and be entertained. They need to come to church and encounter the Holy Spirit. That's what they need. And I believe that that's happening here, but I also think that we need to be really careful that we don't get careless and we start to believe that it's happening because of some environment we've created or something that we've done. We're seeing people come to Christ every single week in this place because of what God's doing. And if it's because of anything, I would say it's because of prayer. You know, it is prayer that brings revival. 
Uh, Fancy programs and busy schedules don't bring revival historically. Historically, when you have revival, people literally come, fall on their knees, crying in repentance. That doesn't happen because someone saw a fancy laser light show. I will tell you this, people of Renovation Church, not even a beautiful new building will bring revival. That's not what brings it. I know so many of you are brand new here, but for those of you that have been hanging out with us for a while, you've heard me saying this for years. This beautiful building is just a tool. It is a tool that has given us more space to do more ministry, to reach more people, to disciple more people. It gives us more opportunities throughout the week for ministry. But a building cannot resurrect the dead. I mean, think about this. There are plenty of beautiful, gorgeous churches all over Europe, and they are empty. In fact, many of the most beautiful, gorgeous churches are now museums. And you can walk through them, and the curator will tell you, this is where people used to believe in God. See, it is prayer. It's not activity. It's not entertainment. It's not beauty. Prayer is the engine room of a church. It says, my house will be a house of not social activity and busyness. My house will be a house of prayer. And we've got to get this right as a church. You know, I, I think we were on the right track when we were at North Point Elementary. We had two services, and we had great prayer meetings before each service. And what happened, I think we sort of been, let's just be honest, I think we've been knocked off kilter a little bit moving in here. Uh, we went to three services because there are a lot of people coming, and we have restrictions, right? We're not jamming 500 people in this room like we will be able to eventually. And so we went to three services, and our plan was, Okay, we'll just do our prayer meeting kind of early in the morning at 8.30, and then when we go back to two services in a couple weeks, uh, then we'll, you know, start doing prayer services before each meeting again. Well, what we found is there are well over 100 more people here every week than we were expecting a month ago. And so we're going to be at three services for a while, which is great, but it just means we got to get this prayer thing right. And so what we're going to do starting next Sunday is we're going to start offering our prayer meeting again 15 minutes before each service. And so if you're coming to this service, you're coming at 1015. If you come at 10 o'clock, we will be praying for God to move in mighty ways right here in the meeting room, which is right out here. And we're going to pray that God would make us a holy people. We're going to pray that God would direct our church. And we're going to pray every week that people would come to meet Jesus. If you come and you have kids, you can actually, if you come at 10 o'clock, you can drop your kids off at Renovation Kids. We'll be ready for you. And you can come and pray with us at 10 o'clock. That God would move. And every week we're seeing people saved. You just saw somebody just give their life to Christ at first service already today. And what's amazing is every week it seems to be somebody's mother from our church. Or somebody's brother. Or somebody's best friend. And it's happening, I think, first and foremost, because there are people in that room banging on the door of heaven say, God, move. And God moves. Every single week. So join us in this. Okay, I, I told you this first reason of uh, how I think churches and, and people are, are hindering people from encountering God. It's, it's, it's maybe interesting. But the second piece, I think, is where you're going to probably feel a bit uncomfortable. And that is okay. If you never feel uncomfortable in church, I promise you your church is not teaching the Bible. 
Because the Bible intersects with our beliefs, with our culture. It is above us. And at times we feel that. And that makes us feel uncomfortable. And that's okay. That's normal. So second reason, second way that I think many of us hinder others from encountering God is this. People can't see God through our sin. Think about this. The reason that Jesus is so mad One of the main reasons is because the sin of the religious people in the temple. I mean, think about the people who are coming to visit the temple. It's Passover. They've traveled, uh, many of them, from other countries. And they're coming to this holy, holy place. It may be their first time at the temple in a year. It may be their first time ever at the temple. And they've made it into the holy place. They walk through the door. They're in the court. And they're ready to just meet with God. And what is their first impression of this God? Their first experience is basically being robbed by these money changers who have essentially stolen all of their money with these surprise fees. And they did it in the name of God. And Jesus is not happy. And that's because one of the greatest, biggest sins that you can commit as a Christian is to let the unholiness of your life deter someone else from wanting to pursue God. I'll give you another example of this. In Matthew 18, Jesus says that if any of us deter a little one from following him, that it would be better for us to actually have a millstone tied around our neck and to drown in the sea. That's how serious Jesus Christ is about us hindering people who are trying to find him in his grace. You remember a couple of minutes ago when we looked at those footnotes, verse 46, maybe you saw there were two of them. So when Jesus says, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers, it's two different quotes from the Old Testament. The den of robbers, if you look at your Bible, actually comes from the book of Jeremiah. And I want to read it to you in context, what God once said through the prophet Jeremiah. So this is Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 9. God says, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, that was a false god, an idol, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, in the temple, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. I think there are too many people today claiming that they are Christians that are doing the same thing. We come into our houses of worship in America and we look no different from the world. How we treat other people, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, what we look at, what we lust at, how we sleep around, what comes out of our mouth, the unrighteous anger that just spews from our life. Many of us, we live no differently than anyone else in this world. And yet we come and we worship God like nothing has happened. Like we've done nothing wrong. Like our sin is not a big deal, but it is a massive deal 
And it is a massive deal in part because your sin is hindering other people from following God. They are unable to see the true, holy, and pure, and loving God through the fog of your own sin. All they see is that we claim that we represent Christ, that we are Christians, and yet we look like everybody else. You know, if those people travel from hundreds of miles away and they came to the temple and they were seeking God and they walked in and they basically had their money stolen, what do you think would have been going through their mind? I can pretty much guarantee you that they would have said, if that's who God's followers are, then I want no part of that. That's not a God I want to follow. And how many people are looking at our lives and saying, if that's what a follower of Jesus is, then I don't want to become a Christian. Our lives, our sin, is hindering outsiders. It's hindering our own coworkers. It's hindering our own family members from finding forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And honestly, that just tears my heart apart. When I, when I move from the abstract and I move to the personal, I think about that in my own life, that just rips my heart apart. Because I know in my own life that there are, because I am a, I am a, I'm a big sinner, just like everybody else in this room. And I know that there have been times in my life where I've let my anger, my judgmental attitude, my pride, turn off maybe some of my own family members my own friends, to Christ. And that just rips my heart apart. Friends, yes, God loves you as a Christian. But this sort of sin is so displeasing to Christ. You know, Ephesians 4 teaches us on this. It says that Christians can grieve the Holy Spirit with their sin. Please do not, make the, do not make an error here in biblical interpretation. Don't make the mistake of thinking that when we apply this particular Bible passage from Luke 19 to modern day, that we somehow get to say, well, in those days, Jesus was really angry and grieved and frustrated at the religious people for living supposedly for saying they're religious, but not living holy lives, and in fact, turning off seekers. He was angry, and he was grieved and frustrated. But when Jesus looks at us, spiritual people today, he just loves us with grace. He's still grieved. God is grieved when our sin is hindering other people from finding him. I'm not saying that people need to look at you and see perfection. That is impossible, You are a sinner, you are human. But they need to look at you and see someone who's different, someone who's being renovated for Jesus. They need to see someone who is running the race that has been marked out for them and therefore is throwing off everything that hinders 
and the sin that so easily entangles. Sure, they're going to see you in sin. Yes, they are. But they need to see you as a Christian, that you are different. And the main way that you are different is you are constantly repenting. Repenting just means you're turning from your sin. You're constantly going, no, I messed up again. I'm so sorry. That's not who I want to be. And it's not who I want to be because I know that sin is hollow and empty. And Jesus is everything. And I'm chasing after Jesus. That's who I am. That's who they need to see. And so I want to give us, all of us, a chance this morning as Christians to repent. Repentance is simply what I said. It literally means to turn around, that you're you're progressing towards sin. And maybe you have been for a long time and your faith has just kind of been lukewarm. To repent and say, no, uh -uh, it's hollow. It's not working. I'm following Jesus again. We need to repent often. A lot of us, we need to repent today. Repent of all the noise. We need to repent of making God's house noisy. We need to repent of letting sin in our lives. You know, I've, told, I've told you guys many times that in history, revival, these movements of God, is most closely associated with prayer. Movements of prayer. You want to know the second thing that revivals in history are most associated with? Repentance. Let me tell you something. God does not sweep through a church and a city in revival when his own people in the church are shrugging their shoulders about their sin. Holiness always comes before revival. In Renovation Church, God is not going to continue to do what he's doing in this place in the last five weeks. If we all just willfully continue in a life that says, oh yeah, I'm saved, but you basically look like the world. But if we would purify ourselves in repentance, if we would be a people that people would look upon us and they would see us saying, no, 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 I'm forsaking sin. I'm following Jesus. Oh, I messed up again. I'm so sorry, but I I know the grace of God. I know God loves me. And yes, again, I'm turning and I'm following Jesus because Jesus is worth everything. If people would see that in us, then there is no limit to what God can do in this place. And so here's what we're going to do. After I finish talking for two minutes, uh, we are going to do absolutely nothing. There'll be no preaching. There's no worship song. We're not going to play some light music in the background. It just, no noise, just silence. There's space for you to encounter God. And I want you to talk with him. And Christians, I want you to repent. Where is it that you have just been letting, willfully letting sin just stay in your life? Where do you need to repent of it and say, no, I'm surrendering that up. I'm following Jesus again. And if you do that, you will find the open arms of the Father. That is the teaching of the New Testament, that when you say, I'm coming back to you, God, every time the father and the prodigal son story in Luke 15, that he's standing there, arms open. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. God is serious about sin, but he is serious about grace. But I will tell you that you won't find that love, that passion, that experience of God if you willfully persist in sin. I assure you that what you will find, if you want to have it both ways, you will say, oh, I'm just saved, I'm forgiven, I prayed the prayer, but I'm just going to live out like everybody else. What you will actually find is God working against you. 
you will find God flipping over the tables of your life to keep you from hindering others from encountering God. And let me just say this finally. There may be a few of you in this room that you need to turn your life over to Jesus Christ for the first time. Like, give him the keys. The basic story of Christianity is that God sent his son Jesus to die for your sins. You can never earn your way to heaven on your own because someone has to pay for your sins. You'll never be good enough. And if you believe that Jesus died in your place, he will forgive everything you've ever done. And you can have eternal life in heaven. And he will come into your life and radically transform it. But you know, when they preach this message in, in the Bible, often they'll, they'll, they'll tell people, they use this phrase a lot. They'll say, what, we, what you need to do is repent and believe. Because if you just say, oh yeah, I believe that, and you just continue on with your life as normal, you probably don't actually believe it. But if you repent and you believe, you say, Jesus, I believe that you, my life is messy and you love me so much that you died for my sins in my place. I believe in that. If you truly believe that, you will repent. You will turn. You say, I'm leaving that old life behind. Here are the keys. I'm letting you be the leader of my life. And there are some of you this morning, you just need to do that. You need to let God forgive you to wipe away your sins and start walking with him for the first time. And it will radically change your life if you do. So if that's you and you need that, what I want you to do is anytime during the two minutes of silence or our final song, I want you to actually stand up where you're at and walk out the doors into the lobby. And I will meet you there and I'll get you some information on how to start that. Now that may seem like a really hard thing to do, but it's also hard to follow Jesus. And I think that you'll find that if you need to do this, that God will put such an urge on your heart that you'll feel like, I just have to do this. I gotta get up right now. And you'll go. Okay? So have two minutes. I want you to encounter God. And if you need to give your life to Christ, I want you to walk out in the lobby and I'll meet you there. All right, let me pray. Lord, Holy Spirit, come into this place. Do incredible things in this place. God, penetrate our hearts. And may we just meet with you now.